If you brought a Bible, would you open with me to the book of Revelation for this our last time? Can I just say, as I uh, have the joy and thrill of wrapping up this very brief summer series with you through five weeks, what a joy it's been to be with you. Uh, I was telling Bob Wood this morning when we prayed before that uh, I really, I, I've not been to a place who has welcomed me uh, as well as you have in the last five weeks. It is an absolute joy. And I, I think Jim Umloff and I like the same music. I'm just, that's, that's just a guess. I think that's true. Um, uh, obviously, Jimmy and uh, Susie, Lord willing, will be returning to us in the weeks to come. And so continue to pray for their safe travels back uh, as they uh, return from there. Uh, many adventures. I know that they'll have lots of stories to tell and lots of things to report to you about their time there that I know you'll enjoy. But suffice to say that uh, the Newsom family has been remarkably blessed and encouraged uh, by uh, our time here with you. So thank you for letting us be here. Uh, Revelation chapter 21. I'd like to read again. I know it's a bit of a long passage, but um, it's just so good. Uh, you, You can't hardly help yourself from uh, Revelation 21 and a couple of verses into 22. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word this morning. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates of the names of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and On them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. 
The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear like glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The the first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. For anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and forever. Grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. I wonder if you remember what a taboo is. A taboo is a topic that in polite culture you really just don't talk about, at least openly anyway. And it used to be that those kinds of conversations were mostly sexual of nature. But those days, if you haven't noticed, are are quite gone. College students these days will not flinch if I begin to talk of the topic of homosexuality or bisexuality or transvesticism or whatever. But, I have a, but it's immediately when you bring up those topics, you have an immediate great discussion going on. But like I've said, Don Carson, who has helped me so much with some of these passages, convinced me that there still is yet one remaining taboo in our culture. And that's the topic of death. That is, you know, I can talk about sexual dysfunction until the cows come home. But the second that I stand up and say, well, let me talk to you about how my dad passed away four years ago. Or let me talk to you about the time that I, I lost my sister in a, in a drunk driving accident. Suddenly you can cut the tension in the room with a knife. <laughs> Carson tells a story about being in a prayer meeting with his own wife. And they were gathering together to pray for a lady, a much beloved lady in their church, who was dying of cancer. And as his wife prayed, at one point during her prayer, she ended up saying, Lord, we ask that you would heal this woman, but if you don't, then would you at least let her die well? And she said that after the prayer service was over, so many of the people came to her and said, do you really think that was appropriate to say that? Should you really even say those kinds of words to people? The crowd was horrified. But in many ways in our culture, it's almost as if we've done everything that we possibly can to anesthetize the idea of death. 
The second that something happens in that particular area, a person is whisked away behind closed doors so that we don't see or experience those things. But the Bible takes the topic of our eventual passing in incredibly practical ways because it hangs a question, does it not? How does one die well? How do you even talk about dying well in a culture like ours? Well, the book of Revelation gives us the answer to that. And the way that the Bible works it is this way, is it shows us the destiny of believing people. It shows us, like I was praying this morning, through the eyes of a heavenly father, exactly where this path is going. And the joy of that fixes a lot of my life here, which is why it tells us. I once had a guy who was trying to, 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 to take on the impossible task of repairing my golf swing. And he said, Les, you know what, sometimes it'll help you if you just think about where you want your swing to finish. That is, imagine where that club ought to finish, and it might actually take away some of the problems in your takeaway and your follow-through. It's the way most people think. I've actually had young men who have had remarkable transformations of life. When they find out that now that they are engaged to be married, they got to fix their life up a bit. That actually happens to be an adequate metaphor for our purpose this morning. Because the anticipation of being wed to someone is exactly the way in which John talks at the end of Revelation. He needs the idea and the glory of marriage to sort of adequately fill up what's coming here. And so what I want to talk about this, this morning is what we will be. And we find that there are at least three things that we see in our passage this morning. The bride of Christ, first of all, will have a new location. Second of all, she will have a new look. And third of all, she will have a new life. She'll have a new location, a new look, and a new life. Let's look at the three of those this morning together. First of all, verses 1 through 8 show us the new location. And look, there are at least two emphases I want to make here this morning. The one may throw you off a little bit. But the first one is this. We find that in John's thinking, heaven is not a place that is up in the sky. Look at what verse 2 says. The heavens and the earth in the vision are actually coming down. A pastor in Nashville, Scotty Smith, once said, it is far more accurate to say that heaven is going to come to us rather than to say that we are going to heaven. Because according to the Bible... Our eternal celebration is not going to take place somewhere up in the clouds, but rather right here in God's world, which will be totally remade and renewed. I love this idea. You've, heard, you've probably heard Jimmy say on numerous occasions that it is, it is false to make an unnatural separation between the physical world and the spiritual world. You ever heard him use the word Gnosticism? That's the basic idea is that, you know, this physical world is evil because it's physical, but it's the spiritual world that's the real thing we're headed for. And so people just assume that our heavenly existence is going to be just as ethereal and spiritual when I shake off this terrible mortal coil, right? But actually, the Bible doesn't allow you to think that way. And this is the reason why I know we think this. For, for about 20 years or so, one of the most persistent questions that I get from college students about heaven is this one. They ask, Les, are we going to know each other when we're in heaven? 
Think about that question for a second. Are we going to know each other? Will we recognize each other? Now, I think that Revelation's answer to that question is, well, of course we will. Why would we not? But to me, I'm more interested in what's behind the question. Because what's behind the question is an assumption that when I get there, I, have no, I am nothing but pure, invisible spirit wafting through eternity or something like that. I don't know. No, the Bible assures us that our existence there will be in some ways continuous with the kind of existence that we have here. In other words, this is my father's world. The physical nature of it is not bad. And so in that time, our physical nature will continue. Renewed bodies, yes. Renewed creation, yes. But continuous with what we have here. I've spoken to some people who said, I'm afraid of death. Because the thought that all of a sudden I'm going to be this, this radically new sort of spiritual existence just kind of freaks me out. And I don't blame you. Because God made it to be natural for us, for our bodies and our souls to be together. Such will be the location of heaven. Richard Pratt once said that we admit this every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. We look and we say, Lord, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. We're calling for God to bring his heaven down to earth and see earth transformed by heaven. Eugene Peterson says this. This is great. Heaven is not remote, either in time or space, but immediate. Heaven is not what we wait for until the rapture or where we go when we die. But heaven is barely out of the range of our senses, but brought to our senses by St. John's visions. We are now able to look upon the events around us, not as a hopeless morass of pagan deception and human misery, but as the birth pangs of a new creation and a beckoning to participate in God's remaking of creation. So heaven will come down to us and remake this actual physical world. But secondly, in the same breath, God says it'll be entirely new. I really do love this emphasis that everything about it will be completely new. Verse 5 says, I think verse 5 is glorious, because it suggests to us that there's something in the very character of God who just likes things to be new. I heard one commentator say that it might be one of the attributes of God, that he is a God of all things new. I had an interesting conversation with a young lady who was a little embarrassed to admit to me that she was pursuing a degree and a hopeful career in the fashion industry. Isn't it easy to condescend to those people? Oh, well, if you're going to be so shallow and superficial as to worry about the way in which people are clothed and the latest fashions, which are utterly arbitrary anyway, fine, go do that. She felt that. From a Christ, grew up in a Christian home, by the way. From a Christian subculture, she felt that. But as we were talking, it suddenly occurred to me, I thought, well, the instinct... To be clothed in something that makes you beautiful might actually be a heavenly instinct. It might actually be something that we are made to long for because we know we need to be covered in something that is beautiful because we know that as we gaze into our souls, we are not beautiful. We had a great talk about saying it might well be that your desire to clothe yourself in beauty is something that's a misplaced longing for heaven itself and a God who longs for all things to be new. The bride has a brand new location completely renewed by God. But secondly, she has a brand new look. And frankly, this is the bulk of our passage here, the look of this new bride. 
But this is where you get to one of the huge mistakes, I think, that people make when they're reading this passage. And it may throw you off a little bit. But I'm just, let me say it out first, and then let's see if I can prove it to you. I believe that the descriptions that we've got of that long information about the city is not about a city that we will inhabit, but are symbolic pictures of what we will look like. Bear with me, again from Scotty Smith. He says, all my life I thought that we Christians would spend eternity walking on streets of gold, having gone through pearly white gates into the eternal city whose cubicle walls are made of all kinds of precious jewels. Now I find out that we, the wife of Jesus, are the city. And from the blank looks on your faces, I see you don't buy it. Follow me here. Look down at verse 9. Check your Bibles on this. Verse 9, what does the angel say? Come, I will show you the bride. Then in verse 10, he carried me away and showed me the holy city. Do you see the connection? The bride is the city in the vision that he's getting. Now, I know this sounds weird. Gentlemen, I'm assuming that never in your most rapturous romantic moments in your life with your heart pounding for your wife. Have you ever looked at her and said, darling, you look like a city. It's okay to laugh at that. Thank you. Carol got that. But if you go with me for just a moment, I think you'll find out that that's a pretty great compliment. And I only have a time for a couple of observances. First of all, notice the beauty of the stones. First of all, those 12 stones that they mentioned there are the same stones that are in the breastplate of the prophet who that was the high priest who went in to the Holy of Holies, signifying, I think, that there's something unique about the presence of God here. But the city looks as beautiful with the stones as, remember from five weeks ago in Revelation chapter 4, as the one who sits on the throne is as beautiful as a precious stone. Oh, I love this. (laughs) Whatever you worship, my friend, you're going to turn into. The book of Isaiah over and over again says that if you set up an idol and you worship that idol, you begin to transform into the vision of the thing upon which your heart has made a life. And so the people of heaven, as they have feasted on and sung to and rejoiced in their God, they themselves begin to take on his beauty So that all of the joy that we saw in just sitting and staring at the wonder and beauty of God himself is true of you. The Bible is saying that at the moment of your death, you will be cloaked in unimaginable beauty. That all of the longing, all of the insecurity, all of the covering that we have done, and not just with our clothes, with our attitudes and our words and our our avoidances, our denials, that one day in a moment, every bit of it is solved. And we realize that we are created for what we were meant to be, and that is to reign in beauty. Secondly, I love how, how much it goes into the heights of the walls. By the way, if you try to calculate this in physical terms, you'll see why I think it's silly to think that we're describing a literal place. Because the city would be 1,365 miles Wide, long, and tall. (laughs) Dennis Johnson is a commentator at Westminster Seminary up in Philadelphia and says, look, the top of the wall standing 1,300 miles above the earth would mean that it would extend in the path of some uh, man-made satellites. But he says these measurements are not understood as physical data. 
But, listen to this, as enhancing the vision's imagery concerning the church's immensity and security. Did you catch that? In other words, the security of the walls, the safety of the walls, which for any ancient Near Eastern person would have been the very physical manifestation of safety. You realize this, don't you? In other words, an ancient Near Eastern person loved the walls of their city and slept at night well for the same reason that you, before you go to bed at night, walk through your house and make sure all the doors are locked. (laughs) Why? Because you don't rest until you know you're secure. And I think that's what John is seizing upon. The vision that Jesus gives him of this great city is that the bride in her new look is 100% secure. She is as safe as a kitten in that place. And then one day there will be a whispering voice that looks and says, not only is this true for now, but it will always be this way. Can you imagine going through a day? Can you imagine going through an hour without the slightest thought of something threatening your well-being? The answer is no. You can't imagine that. That's what John says we're in store for, to be eternally secure place with, with, uh, look, with, with the husband arms of Jesus. And then thirdly, we find that, that the last mark is that she will be intensely satisfied. No more longing, no more wishing. Every hurt healed. I love chapter 22 in the very beginning where it talks about that, that tree that's fed by the river that goes to the middle of the city whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. I know you've been watching the news. (laughs) Do you ever sit for yourself and say, there's no way out of this. There is no way out of this. But there is a tree that is fed by the river of life in that place that as God's people feast upon it, it heals. It brings the healing balm of the future. Look, don't you know this? (laughs) There are so many people that I've known over the years who frankly have have experienced that grim reality of actually getting the things that they've wanted all their lives. You've longed for something, you've hoped for something. I, 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 was, I served for 12 years as a campus minister at Ole Miss. It's always amazing to see who shows up year after year because we are, we are a beauty culture at Ole Miss. The people that show up there are the beautiful people of the beautiful people. And yet time after time, when you see those people who were themselves in possession of every single thing that other people would be the envy of, they came back and said, it's not enough. Have you figured that out yet? There's no new account, gentlemen, that you're going to get that will finally land you on easy street. There is no better spouse than the one that you're with who will finally make you joyful There is no parenting technique that if you will just do, will suddenly create the most well-adjusted, non-embarrassing children. In the end, even the people who have everything that you pine for, even in their own hearts, they say it's not enough. But what if one day it is? What if one day we can enter into a place where there is no more stretching, there's no more longing, there's no more anxiety, and to enter into a place of perfect and and unstoppable satisfaction? Because that's the look. So take again the look at the city, but don't think about it as the place where you're going to dwell. Think about it as you. 
And the words will leap off the page, I think. Thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this, the bride's new life. She not only has a new location, a transformed earth, not only does she have a new look that she's made beautiful and secure and satisfied, but thirdly, she has a brand new life. In other words, how is all this going to be brought about? That's worth asking. So what's the key, Les? What, what, will, be the, what will be the change agent? What will be, be the fairy dust that gets sprinkled all over us and transforms us into this beautiful creature? Well, it's the overarching theme that really pervades the entirety of our passage this morning. Look at chapter 21, verse 3. What does it say? It focuses on the fact that the essence of heaven is to be with God. Verse 7 says that at that time he'll, he'll be a father to us all. In chapter 21, verse 22, we didn't read that, but it mentions the fact that there, there would be no more temple. <clears throat> Why? There'll be no more temple there because the temple was the place where you mediated your experience to God. Does that make sense? You had a go-between between you and God, but, but no more in heaven. Your present, the presence of God will be, will be immediate. It'll be right at your fingertips. It, it'll be accessible. And every dim, even the dimensions of the city screen this fact. Did you notice that? The city is exactly the same wide as it is deep as it is tall. Huh. The city is in a perfect cube. Do you remember another time in the Bible where there's a significant cube? <laughs> Interestingly enough, in the Garden of Eden, <clears throat> if you pay attention to the way in which the garden is laid out and how the rivers flow into it, most Hebrew commentators understood that the garden was a perfect square. A lot of the imagery we get comes from the Garden of Eden. But remember the real, uh, the real cube was in the back of the tabernacle. In other words, God said, look, I want you to build a structure that's going to be the place where I'm going to meet with you. And there's going to be this outer cord and there's this altar where I want you to sacrifice because ain't nobody getting to the back without some blood being shed. And then there's going to be a laver right there where you, where you wash yourself up to get ready. And then there's going to be the tent proper with some very significant furniture in it. But in the back, there's a very special room. And in that room, there's going to be a little box overlaid in gold with two angels on the top with their wings touching and on that place, I will meet you. Guess what the dimensions of the holiest of holies are? It's the same amount deep as it is wide, as it is tall. See what God is saying? He's saying that when that time happens and we move and we are the people of God coming into that place of heaven, we will finally exist and dwell in the holiest of holies that we will be with him. If the city is a cube, it means that our dwelling place will be what it is because he is there. Heaven is not heavenly because it will be a cessation of pain and death and sorrow, though it certainly will be all that. Heaven is heavenly because he will be there. In other words, if my anticipation for heaven is simply for the release of these pain. Drugs can do that for you just fine. Keeping yourself drunk for as long as you can will suffice for that. You can spend all of your money on doctors to extend your life and, and makeup and clothes and everything to push it aside. And it'll work for a while. But the Bible holds out that the essence of heaven is to be with him. 
And so if somehow, this is, this is the point of the series, <laughs> if my religiousness, if my activity at church, if my quiet times, if my, if my compulsion to evangelize, if my desire to serve those sweet kids on the video in Sunday school is not leading to knowing him, we've missed it. We're not getting ready for heaven. It's foreign to us. It all leads and terminates in being with him. Oh, you get the glimmers. You get the glimmers of it here or there when you're with your family, when you're just with your loved one. The light shafts come streaking through every now and then to remind us, oh, it's their presence that I just wanted. But that's the end. Swept up in a divine Trinitarian dance of joy. I don't have time to do Lewis in this point because we're getting to Lewis in just a second. But one small little thought before I finish. Did you notice that, that list that was read at the end of the first section in chapter 21 about the people that are not going to make it? that make anybody else nervous besides me? Because frankly, when you read the list that sort of John goes through in verses 14 and 15, you begin to realize that there are some that are, that are not going to make it. And it makes it nervous for people. But what I simply want to offer you with, if that begins to create some measure of anxiety in you, is that the gospel has a way of showing you the bad news before it shows you the good news. Or how about this? In the terminology of the text, the gospel will make you thirsty before it shows you where you can find a drink. And there is a pattern of God's people, and I would assure you, it is a sign for only God's people that when they read through lists like that, they think to themselves, that's me. That's me. I'm that person. But you know what you're noticing? You're noticing your thirst. And so what Isaiah will end up saying is to you, ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come. Let him come. Let him come and drink. In other words, there's nothing keeping you from this Christ in this passage. The fact that you look and say, and it creates a sense of like, what if that describes me? All you're noticing is your thirst. And so this, the whole book of Revelation is simply setting before the people of God. I know you're thirsty. I know what you've done. Packer says, there is a glorious release in knowing that God's love for me is utterly realistic based at all moments on a prior knowledge of the worst about me so that there's nothing that I can do, nothing I can think, nothing I can say that can somehow surprise him and discourage his determination to bless me. Everyone who thirsts, let him come and drink. Let me close this series with C.S. Lewis in the last battle, and I'll be finished with this. He says, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover of the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read 
but which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you take us by the hand and lead us into it? We believe, but help our unbelief. We see, Father, as through a glass darkly, but we long to see face to face. We suddenly realize that you are God who are Emmanuel, God with us, and we long to be with you. Father, for some of us, our journey is coming to a close. For others of us, our journey seems so far away, we don't know to think of it, but it doesn't matter. It is a path we will all walk. But can we be so bold as to ask that we would take that final step well? And in so doing, to fill up our vision for what you bring us on the other side. No more death, no more tears, and no more pain. And with the idea of you, with your great finger, wiping every tear from our eyes. If you would leave us with that, Lord Jesus, we might be transformed today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.